So we are starting a series in the book of Daniel now this week, which I'm super excited about. What we're going to be doing is taking a week for each chapter. And I thought about that, and there's a there's a lot of like weird stuff in Daniel too. Uh, and I thought about, do we just, you know, which sections do we want to focus on each week? And I really felt just compelled by the Spirit. No, we're, we're going through Daniel. And so if my sermon is shorter because we're taking longer to read the word of God, amen, right? Uh, and so we're going to actually read the whole entire chapter one this morning. And we'll do that each week for the next 12 weeks. Sound good? And how fitting is it that we are starting this book, which is a book on uh, God's people being exiled on the week that we've been exiled out of Southwest Indian Ministries, right? Uh, and, and not only that, but seriously, as I was saying earlier, like exiled into a place where we're guests of people who have a, a different native language than we do. Because they're here as foreigners from their, their home country, right? And just this reminder of like what it looks like to be a displaced people. And I think too often we get in our heads that, uh, especially if you've grown up here, if you've been born and raised in America, we feel like uh, this is just the way it, it is and supposed to be for all the world all the time, at all times. Like we forget that there's times and places throughout history and the world that all have different cultures, different contexts, uh, different languages, different ways of life, and that the gospel, the good news of God's restoration through Jesus is for all the world, for every tribe, tongue, and nation. And that there's times throughout history where God would actually exile the people he called so that this other nation would hear about him. And the whole reason he called those people in the first place was so that they would be a blessing and a light to the other nations. Like their original role was to call the other nations to come and join them and be a part of God's family. And when they failed at that is when God said, all right, fine, I'm going to send you to the other nations by letting them come and conquer you and oppress you and take over. And it's kind of crazy, uh, but we see God at work even in the midst of their oppression. We see God at work restoring Israel's faithfulness, but also bringing good news to a people who did not yet know him. And so this whole book is about exile, and it's about how do you live in exile. And I want us to remember, uh, even though we feel comfortable at home in our own land, that the reality is we too are people in exile, uh, because this is not our home. This is not our final resting place. This is not the kingdom that we're called to live in. I mean, yes, this earth, God is at work to restore this earth, and we are called to help reign on this earth with him, but right now we are living on this earth under human kingdoms. We've been exiled, in a sense, because of our own sin, under the rule and reign of human kingdoms when we've been called to live in the light of God's kingdom. And so how do we live as God's kingdom people in the midst of a human kingdom? That's what Daniel's all about. Uh, and as we are exploring that theme of exile, I want us to watch this video from the Bible Project talking about tracing that theme of exile, which you see all throughout scripture. It's not an isolated event to the book of Daniel. So we'll watch this and then we'll read together. 
In the year 587 BC, the city of Jerusalem was attacked by the Babylonian Empire. And a year later, the city and the temple were plundered and burned. Thousands of Israelites were taken from their homes and relocated all over ancient Babylon. They became exiles. And so now they're a minority, surrounded by a new culture with new gods. Now, some Israelites chose to resist Babylon by revolting or withdrawing. Others gave in, adopting the Babylonian way of life and accepting these new gods as their own. And you might think those are your only two options, but the prophet Jeremiah told them to do something totally different and surprising. To settle in, build houses, plant gardens, grow families, and most surprisingly, to seek the well-being of Babylon and pray to the Lord on its behalf. So this is like a third way. Yeah, it's not compromise or revolt. What does it look like? Well, there's a whole book of the Bible that explores that question. It's the story of Daniel. Daniel was one of the Israelites taken into the Babylonian exile. And because Daniel had a royal heritage and education, he was recruited along with some friends to work in the high court of Babylon. Work for the enemy? That would be compromise. Or they could gain the king's trust and take him down from the inside. That's what you might expect, but instead they take Jeremiah's advice and choose the third way. They serve the king of Babylon, taking on Babylonian names and even clothing style. So they seek Babylon's well-being. But in doing so, aren't they just giving up their heritage? It could seem that way, but actually, they aren't. As you read on, the story focuses on moments where they draw the line, and they choose faithfulness to their God and resist the influence of Babylon. So, for example? Well, like when they're commanded to bow down to the idol of Babylon and give allegiance to the king as if he's a god. Ah, they won't go that far. Right. This is where you see their true loyalty. It requires them to critique Babylon's idolatry of power, its arrogance, its injustice. But they do it non-violently by laying down their lives. And so God vindicates Daniel and his friends for their faithfulness. So they would serve Babylon, seek its well-being, but their loyalty was always to God. Yeah, this is what Jeremiah was envisioning. The way of the exile is a combination of loyalty and also subversion. So they're still exiles, but don't Daniel and his friends long to go home? Yes. In fact, Daniel believed that God was going to send a ruler to bring down Babylon and create a true kingdom of peace. Ah, when did he think this ruler would come? Well, at first he thought within his lifetime. But then he had a dream where he found out that after Babylon would come another oppressive empire, then another, then another. And so Babylon did fall, and Israel did get to go back home, but now they're ruled by Babylon's successors. And so they maintained the mindset of an exile, waiting for their true home to come to them. And they continued the same practice of loyalty and subversion to any new versions of Babylon that came along. And this leads us to the time of Jesus. The empire of his day was Rome, ruled by Caesar. Now some Israelites wanted to resist, while others gave in and adopted Roman culture and its gods. But watch Jesus carry on the subversive loyalty of Daniel. Like when he said, it's fine to pay taxes to Caesar, give him back his coins. But then he said, don't mistake Caesar for God. God's the one who deserves your total life and allegiance. So the way of Jesus is this same mix of loyalty and subversion. Yeah, like he taught his followers to love and even bless their enemies. But he also got arrested for speaking out against the corrupt leaders of Jerusalem and Rome. He critiqued their idolatry of power and it cost him his life. But God vindicated him by raising him from the dead as the true king of the nations. The king that Daniel had hoped for. 
right. And Jesus promised that one day his kingdom would prevail. And so until then, his followers are living in a type of exile. Yeah, this is why the Apostle Peter calls followers of Jesus foreigners and exiles. He told them to respect the authorities of whatever place you happen to live, to honor and love all people. But then he reminds them that this isn't their true home. They're still living in Babylon. But, well, they're not living in Babylon. Babylon doesn't exist anymore. Or does it? In the Bible, Babylon has become a symbol that describes any human institution that demands allegiance to its idolatrous redefinitions of good and evil. Okay, so we all live and work in Babylon. How do I seek the well-being of Babylon while my allegiance is to someone greater? Yes, Jesus' followers are called to live in that tension between loyalty and subversion. That's the way of the exile. So we saw Jesus doing that and teaching his followers to do that as we went through the book of Luke most recently, right? Uh, and that's a big reason why I was excited to start Daniel together uh, because a lot of what Jesus talks about and how he's living out the kingdom of God in the midst of a, a culture that's ruled by a Roman empire comes from the book of Daniel, and Jesus knew the scriptures well, and he knew Daniel well. And so, in fact, the name that he used for himself, most often, the Son of Man, comes directly from the book of Daniel in chapter 7, which we'll get to on week 7. Uh, but today, we're starting in chapter 1 and seeing how it all started. And as we do that, as, as we open that up right now, I want to draw one other quick note to uh, what we're going to see. When we read through the book of Daniel, and maybe not right away this morning, but throughout the series and throughout the book, you're going to see a lot of parallels and similarities between Daniel and another Old Testament figure, Joseph. Uh, they both were people who were brought into captivity and then could interpret someone's dreams, the king's dreams, and then because of that, were brought to a, a prominent place of power and authority. And there's a lot of similarities we'll find between those two characters. And what's interesting about that, though, is what we see in the story of Joseph, uh, he, he goes from being the youngest brother of 12 to being a slave to being the most powerful person in almost all the world. And you see in that story that the whole reason God did that was so that Joseph could end up bringing salvation to his people. Uh, through famine and through all kinds of stuff. And so Joseph, in a sense, we, we call that, you can say, is a, a type of Jesus. And all that means is not that he's, he's on par with Jesus, but that he's a figure in the Old Testament that's pointing us forward to what we ultimately need, right? Uh, and Daniel, here's the contrast. Daniel, though, there's lots of similarities between these two. Daniel never gets to a prominent place of authority where he's allowed to save God's people now. He never gets to the place where he's able to become a rescuer. Uh, he, he's just called to be faithful through exile his entire life. And whereas Joseph is pointing us forward to what Jesus is going to look like, I believe Daniel is pointing us to what the church is supposed to look like. Does that make sense? That this is what faithfulness in exile looks like for God's people. And we get the highlights, we get all the awesome things Daniel and his friends did, uh, but we also know that they were humans and they were sinners too, and they were in need of a greater rescuer to come one day. And so we'll just keep that in mind as we read. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. 
I'm going to read the first seven verses. We'll pause. I'll read the next chunk, and then we'll, we'll move that way. But in Daniel chapter 1, it says this, starting in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to him, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Nebuchadnezzar carried them to the land of Babylon, to the house of his God, and put the vessels in the treasury of his God. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledge, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language. Chaldeans were the same as the Babylons. Their language and literature. Verse 5, the king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to attend to the king. Among them from the Judahites were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. If you don't recognize his names, maybe you're more familiar with their slave names. The chief eunuch gave them names. He gave the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. Let's pause there for a second. How did these guys end up in exile? Verse 2. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim of Judah over to Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord did this. Like their enemy, Babylon, this wicked nation, comes in, marches into their land, and it says laid siege to the Israelites. They came in and they, they trampled over them and they took things from them. They took, they took artifacts from the temple vessels of the house of God and they put it in their false gods temples they're mocking the god of Israel they, they come in and they take young men their finest young men I, I love how it says this it says uh, some from the royal family from the nobility young men without any physical defect good looking like the, that's an important note Every time I read that, for some reason, I always get like um, a Zoolander in my head, who's like, he's talking about building a school for the ridiculously good-looking. I don't know why, but uh, they're going into the school of the ridiculously good-looking, and they're taking all of them, right? All the, all the ones who were suitable for wisdom and knowledge, they were perceptive, capable. They're taking like the best of their best. And they're going in and plundering. The Lord handed them over to this. Why? Anyone have a guess? Why would the Lord hand his people he called and chose for himself over to this crooked nation, this crooked kingdom, and allow these things to take place? What are your thoughts? They have forgotten their Lord. Hmm. They have forgotten their Lord. Yeah? How so?
Yeah, Adrian, that's great. They've forgotten what the Lord had taken them out of. What had God taken them out of? Slavery, Slavery right? Right? Remember, we, we said there's parallels with Daniel to Joseph. Remember, Joseph is the one who actually brought them into Egypt, but hundreds of years later, they end up being enslaved by the Egyptians. And they end up worshiping the Egyptian gods with the Egyptian people. They assimilate into their culture in a sense, but they're still slaves there. And they're crying out, God, will you still come and save us and rescue us? And he does. He comes and he rescues them. And then he says, I've rescued you out of Egypt, out of slavery. Now, this is how I want you to live, right? And he shows them the right way to live. And he tells them, you don't need a human king over you. Do you, do you see what this human king, this Pharaoh was doing and how he was treating you and even his own people? You don't need a king like the other nations. I will be your king. And yet they kept crying out, God, give us a king so we could be like the other nations. And God finally gives in. He hands them over to that desire, right? And so they get King Saul and King David and Solomon. And then king after king after king who continues to turn away from the ways of the Lord. King after king who leads the people astray. King after king who gives in to his own selfish desires rather than calling people to the life of the kingdom of God that they had been called to live into. Bringing destruction and turmoil among the nation. And finally, after generations and generations of that, God goes, enough. It's enough of this. You want to see what it's like to live under the oppression and reign of a human kingdom? Here you go. So God hands them over. What's interesting about this exile is that Babylon itself had come out of exile. Babylon had been built and started out of the exile of Cain. Do you remember Cain and Abel toward the beginning of the story? Cain, who out of jealousy and anger kills his own brother, and God casts him away. He just sends him out into the wilderness. And in that wilderness, this whole group of people is born. And that's where Babylon is built. Babylon was a place of exile, but because God's own people failed to remember him and his salvation, he lets them get exiled to it as well. Remember what I saved you from, right? In Egypt. Do you remember that salvation from Egypt? Included what? It included the Passover lamb, where they were called to take the, the lamb, the, the young lamb, without any blemish or defect. How are these young men described? Verse three, the king ordered Aspenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family, from the nobility, young men without any physical defect. In a sense, these young men are sacrifices to Babylon. The way that God had called his people to make a sacrifice to him so that he would save them, right? He would pass over them when he came and he brought destruction to the firstborn son of the Egyptian empire. In a sense, in this story, what we're hearing is that lamb's not gonna save you anymore. You need something better. And so God hands them over to this. And now they're being brought into captivity 
And King Nebuchadnezzar, he's pretty smart. Like, we got to give credit where credit's due, right? What most kingdoms would do, if you're going to take over, if you're going to conquer, is they would go in and they would lay siege to a land, and then they would start moving their people in. You'd start moving into the territory and taking over. Nebuchadnezzar does things a little backwards. Instead, he goes in, he, he shows his dominance, he lays siege, but then, instead of moving his people in, he takes some of their people out. And he brings them into his own place. And he brings them into his own schools. And he brings them even into his own palace. And he lets them eat from his own table. In a sense, he wants them to kind of like Babylon. And he starts training them up in the ways of Babylon. He's trying to assimilate them. And then when the best of the best of your people start going, hey, this Babylon's not so bad, what do you think starts happening to the other people? You start following suit, right? It's pretty smart. So he brings them in, and he starts teaching them. He gives them an education. So like you just got four years at Babylon University paid for. You got a grant. And not only that, you're given new clothes, new threads, and you're getting the best food Babylon has to offer. Food from the king's table himself. I'm talking wine and breads and meats and all kinds of good stuff, right? But you would think here's the downside. Oh, here, here's the problem, right? Verse 7. He gives them new names. Like they're totally changing who they are. I want to share a little bit what those names mean, okay? So names had meanings back then. I know now, like, people, oh, what'd you name your, your son? This is Lemon Drop. What? Oh, that's my favorite Girl Scout cookie. I don't know. Like, we don't have meanings to our names anymore, but in this culture, names had significant meanings. And so Daniel's name in Hebrew meant Yahweh judges. God is our judge. And he gets his name changed to Belteshazzar, which means Protect the life of the king by Bel's power. Bel was a goddess of Babylon. So no, no longer is the focus on the God of Israel, Yahweh, but it's now your job, Daniel, is to protect Nebuchadnezzar. Hananiah, his name meant Yahweh is gracious. And instead, he becomes Shadrach. Aku, the moon god, commands us. Yahweh is gracious to you, but a coup commands you, right? That's a significant change. They're trying to change his identity completely. Michel, who is like Yahweh? Who in all of creation, in all of the universe is like our God? And that name gets changed to Meshach, who is like a coup, the moon god of Babylon. See, they were very, very intentional and smart with these name changes. It wasn't just like, I can't, pre when, when my, I was told, my last name is Preby, and I was told when ancestors moved here, it was Shibosheski. I don't know how you get Preby out of that, but apparently it was like some of the few letters they can make out from there, and they just took that and said, we can't say Shibosheski, you're Preby, okay? So that's not what happened here. They were intentional, they were going, oh, I know what this name means, no, you are now this changing your identity. Azariah, Yahweh has helped. No, you're now Abednego. You will help. You are the servant of Nebo, the god of wisdom in Babylon. You see what they did there? Now, you would think that these four men, they just got their name changed. They're trying to give them a new identity. You would think that's 
that's the last straw, right? Like, I know you're treating us well, you're giving us all this good food, but that's not cool. My name's Daniel. Let's read on and find out what they do. Verse 8. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. God had granted Daniel kindness and compassion from the chief eunuch. Yet he said to Daniel, I fear my Lord, the king, who assigned your food and drink. What if he sees your faces looking thinner than the other young men your age? You would endanger my life with the king. So Daniel said to the guard, whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. He agreed with them about this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, they looked better and healthier than all the young men who were eating the king's food. So the guard continued to remove their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Daniel determined... He was drawing the line in the sand on food. And all of you paleo and vegan people in here said amen, right? <laughs> Has anyone ever done the Daniel fast before? Like, yeah, yeah. There's like a bunch of versions out there. And like a big part of it is like you're not supposed to take in just things that taste good. <laughs> That's the whole point. <laughs> like no sweets or anything. I found so many ways to get around that and make things taste sweet by not using sugar. It was kind of pointless, but anyway. And what about Whole30? That's like our, our, our equivalent, right? Yeah? I've done it too. I'm not poking fun. It's a good thing. Be healthy. Is the point of this that Daniel is showing us how to eat healthy? Is the point of this that we, we all need to start keto tomorrow? Or we need to do Whole30? Like, maybe these people were they were not healthy because of all the, the red meat they were taking in, right? Yeah? yeah? <laughs> the carcinogens that are in that. And if you just eat carrots, you're going to do well. All right, now, obviously we're poking fun at this, but listen, this is a whole nation, a whole people that God had commanded yearly to celebrate their salvation through slaughtering and eating a lamb. The point's not to not eat meat here. There's something else going on, right? There's, there's a couple things happening here. You are plucked out of your home. You're given a new name, almost as to say, here's a new identity for you. You're given a new education. And you're given some really good food. Which one are you going to turn down? Of all the things that would be uncomfortable for these guys, I'm changing your name. You're going to have to come sit at this school and learn all these things that you completely disagree with, and you've got to pass. So you've got to know it well. You've got to live in a whole other culture, wear weird clothes, and you've got to eat this really delicious food. Which one are you going to turn down? Isn't it interesting that the thing that would have brought the most comfort to them 
is the thing that Daniel and his friends reject. You guys, when we're living as exiled people in a human kingdom, how often are you turning down the comfortable things? How often does your faithfulness to God look like giving up the comfortable things and pressing into the difficult things? It's a hard question, huh? They could have easily said, this is not okay to change my name from Yahweh Judges to Aku Commands, right? Like, why would you be okay with that? And they go, you can, I don't care. You can call me whatever you want to call me. I know who I am. And I know who I belong to. You can go, why, why are you going to make me sit here and learn your culture, your astrology, your weird, mythical, mystical stuff that I disagree with? You know what? It's okay. I know that there's actually some wisdom in this because God is the God who is, provides wisdom for all people and he's got more wisdom than all of it. And I could sit here and I could actually take this in and I can go, you know what? This is some creational goodness right here. Here's some wisdom from the Lord. They just don't even know that that's where it comes from maybe. Uh, and then here's all the junk too. And I can sift that out through God's grace. Here's some really, really, really good, delicious food. No, no thanks. I'm not gonna do that. Why? There's a couple theories. We're not actually explicitly told in Daniel why they drew the line in the sand there. And so one thought is that, you know, there actually were a lot of Jewish laws around what kind of foods you could eat and foods you could not eat, right? There were foods that would make you ceremonially unclean, right? We know that's probably not the case here because they could drink some wine. You guys remember when we were uh, teaching through the Lord's Supper? And we drank like four glasses of wine that morning each. Yeah. You guys remember that? You know some of you don't remember that. That's a problem, right? No, they, they were commanded to drink wine. They were commanded to eat meat. Like, it wasn't necessarily that. Another popular thought is that actually a lot of the food, and, and this is known through history, is that this culture of Babylon would sacrifice their food, they would offer it up as a sacrifice to their gods before taking it in, and especially in the king's palace at the king's table. This is a sacrifice to the god or the goddess of this or that, and then they would partake. And not only that, in this culture too, sharing the table with somebody was a very communal thing. And when, when you're sharing the table with somebody, you're welcoming them in as family, so to speak. Now, I don't think it's so much a problem that they had so much an issue with the sharing the table with the king because Jesus shared the table with a lot of people who weren't welcomed into the temple courts, right? Jesus shared the table with anybody and everybody. He opened his table up. So I don't think it's so much that, but come and share the table with the king as I offer this food up as a sacrifice to these guys and I'm calling you to join in that with me. It's a communal thing. I'm calling you to give praise up to this God as we share and delight in this food that comes from them. Do you see what's happening here? You can call me whatever you want to call me. You can teach me whatever you want to teach me, but I will not bow down to anything or anyone other than the God of Israel. 
That's where they drew the line in the sand. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, or whatever their new names are, said, all right, we can press into these uncomfortable areas. We can deal with you calling me something that my mom didn't call me as a child. I can deal with you trying to teach me and assimilate me into your culture. In fact, I'm here to help your culture prosper. That's what we saw in that video, right? Jeremiah calls to the same people being taken by Babylon to seek the welfare of the city, to build parks and houses, to settle in. Pray that this city does well because if it does well, then you do well too. And to be part of that culture in a way that you are a salt and a light to that culture. Be part of that culture in a way that you are a a present help in that culture. And that you are pointing those people to something greater and better. But don't be part of that culture in a way that you bow down to the same idols and gods that they do. You guys, what are the idols and gods our culture is calling us to bow down to? It's not a coup the moon god, but it's these little screens that we hold in our hands, right? Or it's your Netflix binge, or it's comfort. Yeah, these guys press into the discomfort and they denied the comfort. It's our time, our schedule, right? Maybe it's our own families. It's the values of our culture. It's the individualism in America. You just do whatever you need to do for you to get ahead. You just do what makes you happy. You make sure nobody stops you from living out your best life, right? You make sure that nobody makes you feel guilty for that thing you did wrong because no one can judge you. And nobody likes being judged except for when they like being judged, right? Like when I tell you, man, your hair looks really nice today, I'm making a judgment and you like that one, but you don't like the other judgments. Because we have built up this idolatry in our culture that says nobody can tell me how to live. And now we have a whole nation being told exactly how to live by a corrupt human kingdom. And some of them, some of them assimilated, some of them gave into it, and some of them said, this food's not so bad. Some of them said, "Ah, it's okay, you can tell me how to live. Some of them maybe didn't realize they were being told how to live. Probably like most of us in here. Some of them fought against it hard, and they said, no, 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 we are revolting. And they probably got killed pretty quickly or put in chains. But there's this third way that these four men, and Lord willing, hopefully a few others with them, decided to live. And they ate vegetables. Verse 17, through the end, God gave these four men knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. At the end of the time that the king had set to present them, that's after three years, remember, they were to be presented, the chief eunuch presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. 
The king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to attend to the king. And every matter of wisdom and understanding that the king consulted them about, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and mediums in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. That's the end of Daniel chapter 1. These men, because they had the wisdom to reject the comfort idols of Babylon and to continue to faithfully serve Babylon while praising and ultimately serving their God. God honors their obedience with wisdom and even stature. God honors their obedience and their faithfulness by being present with them and helping them to understand things that no other people could understand. But remember what we talked about at the beginning, this is a picture of how the church is supposed to live. It's not a picture of our hero. Daniel's not the hero of the story. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know because they're human beings that they were not perfect 100% of the time and that they were in need of someone to come and rescue them out of Babylon, just like you and I are in need of someone to come and rescue us now. And the beautiful thing is that as we go through Daniel, you'll see he starts to get dreams and visions. We're told he was given dreams and visions and understanding because of his obedience and his faithfulness to God. One of those dreams and visions is that he sees all of these human kingdoms being built and finally there comes a day where the Son of Man comes and establishes the kingdom of God that will rule and reign forever. And it crushes the human kingdoms, destroys them. And so what is your hope in right now? Is it in a human kingdom? Is it in politics? Is it in the ways that society are going right now? If we just do this and get this right, things will be better? Because all of that's going to be crushed one day by the rock. That's what Daniel will tell us. It will crumble to the ground. But there will be a kingdom that comes, that is brought in by the Son of God, the Son of Man, that will rule and reign forever, and it's a good kingdom. These guys were offered the food from the king's table. They weren't sitting at the king's table. It was like they were given the scraps from King Nebuchadnezzar's table, but the king of Babylon would not stay king forever. When Jesus comes, he sits at the table with any and everyone, all are welcome. And Jesus refers to himself as the bread of life. He is the king's food that we look to. He's the king's food that nourishes us. And one day we're told, if we're faithful like those men were, if we're faithful in looking to the true God, the true king, that one day we will get to sit at the table at a feast, at a banquet, at a party, eating at the king's table with King Jesus himself. That's good news. How do we be faithful in the midst of that in America in 2019, in Phoenix, Arizona? How do we be faithful when we have our culture calling us to bow down or to pledge our allegiance to all kinds of symbols and ideas? How do we remain faithful to the one true God, the king over all of creation who invites us to go and sit at his table? 
We're going to practice that right now. We go to the table each week because we remember that this king paid a heavy cost and sacrifice so that we could be welcome to his table. We take the bread, we remember his body was broken. We take the cup, we remember his blood was poured out. And as we go to the table this evening, I want us to remember that we are looking forward to an ultimate feast where we get to sit at the table with Jesus and we get to party with him, you guys. And it's gonna be so good. And all the idols and the comforts of this world will fall away, but we will be comforted with the kingdom of God forever. Amen? So let's go to the table. There's a table on each side of the room. Go with someone. Remind one another who is king over all of creation. Take the bread, dip it in the cup. If you are part of this family, there's a box on that side. I apologize, I only moved one from Southwest. So it's only on that side to give of your tithes and your offerings. And then we're gonna sing two songs and then we're going to enjoy eating at the table together. We do this as a way of pointing forward to that ultimate feast at the table. God's people getting together and breaking bread. Sound good? All right, let's worship.